All right, well, we want to dive in and enjoy God in the midst of his word. And uh, what we've been doing for the past several Sundays is we have been studying some of the D-list characters of the Bible. Uh, These are those characters whose names are kind of hard to pronounce maybe sometimes, or maybe you've heard the name, but you're a little foggy on the details of their life. And uh, this morning, uh, one of the characters I would say is really more of a C-list character, not a D-lister exactly. Many of you have heard and are familiar with the name of Naaman. Um, We find his story in 2 Kings 5. And this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the first 19 verses of 2 Kings 5, which tells us the story of Naaman, a Syrian general. Uh, For the past two weeks, we've been talking about an Assyrian general called the Rabshakeh, and this morning we're going to talk about Naaman. And we'll pause as we move through the story to unpack some of what I think God might be saying to us through this story this morning. We start in verse 1 of 2 Kings 5. It says this, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a mighty man of valor, but, and that is an awfully big but there, he had leprosy. In verse 1, the author uses four phrases to describe the importance of Naaman. He was the supreme commander of the armies of Syria. He was a great man, which is to say he was a man of high social standing and prominence. Third, through success in battle, we're told he was highly regarded by the king of Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, which is used in the Old Testament to mean both great wealth, we see that in Ruth 2.1, for example, and a courageous warrior, such as in Judges 6 or 11. So those are the four things that the Bible describes. It really sets up a picture of this man as a very competent commander, great man, a connected man, a man of high social standing and prominence, a a successful man and a mighty man of valor, but he had leprosy. So this Naaman has really got the bull by the horns. He's risen to the very top of his field. He's an A-list celebrity in his own home country. He travels in the highest circles. He's on a first-name basis with the king, and he is filthy rich. But... And doesn't that drop like a ton of bricks? He has leprosy. That one one word leprosy changes everything about Naaman. The prognosis wasn't good. Despite all his honors and successes, Naaman was sick with a feared disease and soon to be outcast and forgotten. And that wasn't even the worst of it. Let's not forget that this was a terminal illness. And despite all of his remarkable life achievements, he was going to die of leprosy, and seemingly nothing could change that. I think what verse 1 wants us to see is that Naaman has lots of resources, but none of them are any help when he contemplates the end of his own life. He is well-connected, but none of the power players that he knows can take care of this problem. He is rich, 
But no cure can be bought, and no well-placed bribe can make this go away. He is rich, that's true, and he is famous, but leprosy plays no favorites. He has an entire army at his disposal, and he himself is a mighty warrior, but this is one enemy that he cannot stab or have beaten to death, because the enemy he is facing is death itself. This is a man who is a mess to be reckoned with. He is a rolling problem solver of a man. You have a problem and you go to Naaman, he can take care of it almost every time. But he has leprosy. There's no one he can turn to for that. There's nothing he can do about it. And now we're introduced to who I think is really the hero of this story and who is not even a D-list celebrity. I've never heard of an F-list celebrity. I've never heard of a G-list Bible character, but that's who this is. In verse 2, it says this, Now bands of raiders from Aram, and Aram is is synonymous with Syria, by the way. We're using them interchangeably. They had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now this chapter is filled with famous and important people. We meet in this chapter not one, but two kings. We meet the great prophet Elisha. We meet the mighty man Naaman himself, and we meet his wife, who is no doubt also powerful and influential. And yet sometimes, we, f- we skip right over the most pivotal and important character in the entire story, and that is this young servant girl. Tell me, how many tears had this girl wept, and how many desperate, frightened prayers had she breathed out as a captive slave girl among the Syrians? We read in one sentence that awful, frightening fact that she was stolen away from her home as a little girl, And I sometimes fail to attach the emotional weight to that sentence. Think of her poor family, their little girl stolen violently from them. What sorts of fears would you have if a group of men had targeted for capture young girls? Both the girl and her family must have often asked God why he had allowed this to happen. But what courage she has, what faith she has. She saw Naaman's problem and knew that God could cure him through the prophet Elisha. Can you imagine the courage it must have taken for her to speak up and make such a promise to a man like Naaman? Can you imagine the position she would have been in if Naaman had gone all the way to Samaria seeking a cure from Elisha and had come back still struck in, struck with Leprosy, uncured. Wouldn't it have been far safer for this girl to just keep her mouth shut, to just keep her head down? Wouldn't it have been natural to hate Naaman and wish leprosy on him anyway? And death on all her captors. But this girl didn't do that. She spoke up. And we don't know about her motives. We don't know about the heart behind the statement. But I am struck by the fact that this is 
sometimes the spirit with which Christians speak up and talk about the healing that is available in Jesus to people who frankly have not been very kind to them. Uh, We see here a picture of what it is for Jesus to come to us because of who he is, not because of who we are. We see a God who loved us when we were yet sinful, who gave himself for us. We see a girl sacrificially sticking her neck out to a man who has enslaved her, stolen her from her people and her family and all that she knew. This is a picture of what some Christian evangelism looks like. Verses 4 through 6, Naaman went to his master, that being the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now according to verse 5, Naaman brings with him approximately 900 pounds of precious metals. In today's value, the combined amount of the silver and gold would bring, well, I don't even know, I think it's well over between 3 and $4 million we're talking about. Plus, just for good measure, he brought along 10, sweats, 10 sets of sweet designer clothes. Suddenly, he thinks he might have the resources after all. He's, his thinking seems to be, I'll give money. I'll buy my cure. I do have the resources to address this problem. And he is also using a carrot and stick approach. If the absolute hoard of precious metals that he's rumbling across the border into Israel do not do the trick, if he can't buy the cure, then maybe a scary letter from the king to the king of Israel will provide the needed pressure. And this is clearly what's happening because this is how the king of Israel responds. In verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. This king who has developed a finely tuned political nose sees in this the opening chess move in an advance towards war. Uh, He sees that what the king is doing is he's setting up an impossible scenario where if he doesn't do what he's told, it will be a pretext for war. The letter apparently is received as sort of a veiled threat. Notice that the king of Syria does not address the letter to Elisha, the miracle worker, but to the king demanding that he cure Naaman of his leprosy. And I don't think he's confused about who is the miracle worker in Israel. I think he's saying in a nakedly aggressive way, make sure this happens. Make sure everything is done to get Naaman in front of this guy and to make sure he does what I expect him to do. And what he says here is, am I God? Am I God? What a question. 
Of course he's not, but do you have faith in God? Now we come to verses 8 through 12. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, had sent him this message, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. We really need to dissect what's going on here. This is an interesting moment. Really, it is. The great man Naaman is not invited in. He's made to stand outside, and a messenger comes out and talks to him. This, of course, is not how Naaman is used to be treated. And the prescription for his predicament, although it does not require nothing of him, does not require anything grand enough that he will be able to boast in it. Naaman is more used to giving orders than taking them. He's more used to paying his own way than receiving a gift. And given his status and his bank account, Naaman had expected to be met with deference and respect, but everything Elisha does seems designed to offend him. Why? Why would Elisha Elisha deliberately jab his thumb in Naaman's eye in this way? Why not just be more politic? <clears throat> and it's, here's why. Naaman will never put his trust in the Almighty, and he will never become a worshiper of the Almighty God so long as he is permitted to think that his needs will be met by his wealth, powerful friends, or by his inner grit and fortitude. As long as he feels no particular need for God, he will not be able to become a worshiper of God or know deliverance and salvation. Basically, Naaman shows up on the doorstep wanting God to jump when he says to, and I'll pay for it, and I'll do whatever. Basically, Naaman wants to walk away from God blessed but independent. He sees God as the means to another end. He feels no particular need for God. And so he cannot really be a worshiper of that God. He sees his greatest problem as his leprosy, not his separation from God. But Naaman once again is helped by another unnamed hero in the whole account. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something, some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, here's the news that hangs heavy over this room right now. 
Guys, you all have leprosy. (laughs) I mean it. Maybe not leprosy itself. But we are all afflicted with the terminal illness of our sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. What human being ever brought forth from the womb has ever lived forever? (laughs) We all die. We're all Naaman. And what can you do about it? What can your bank account, what can your connections, what can your inner resources do about the fact that hanging over you is the awful reality that it's appointed unto all men once to die? Nothing. But we've heard that there is one who can take away death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Have you heard that there is one you can go to and be washed clean? There is. This is the great hope of the gospel. This is the great central load-bearing truth of Christianity. This is what separates worship of the one true God from all those other religions. And what God has asked of you is not that you make some huge, costly demonstration. (laughs) or that you get it done. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to show how bad you really want it. Do you know why? Because God did it for you. This is the gospel. And he did it for you because he will not share his glory. Naaman wants to walk away from this being able to say, I got it done. I had wealth enough, and I got a letter from the king of Syria, I carried it and sticked my way into a healing. That's what he wants to be able to say. And when he shows up, the messenger says, hey, if you want to be healed, take your money and go. Take your letter and, well, never mind what you do with it. (laughs) Just go wash in the river and you'll be healed. And he's enraged. He's enraged that he gets to be healed for nothing. What is that? That's just pride. That's just pride. And there are so many human beings who hear Jesus has paid it all. And they think to themselves, yeah, but I'm really going to earn it by being good. I'm going to do all the do's. I'm not going to not do all the do nots. And I'm going to make God my in debt to me. God will have to give me salvation. And that's not how any of this works. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Uh, This is an amazing statement Naaman makes. He has grown up in a pantheistic faith tradition. He's been raised to believe that there are many gods. But now, based on his experience with the God of all Israel, he does not add one more God to the shelf to share space in his mind with Baal, Ashtaroth, Dagon, and Rimon. No, with this statement, he sweeps all of them into the trash can and declares there is only one God in all the world. Still, however, 
he says, please accept a gift from your servant. He knows who the right God is, but he does not yet know the right way to worship him. He is trying to worship Jehovah as he was accustomed to worshiping Baal, I think. So in verse 16, the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. There's an interesting comparison here between Naaman and the rich young ruler that we meet in Luke 18. Do you remember that rich young ruler in Luke 18? He comes to him and says, what must I do? And Jesus says, you're a man of great wealth. You've got to take everything you have, give it to the poor. Now, both the command to give all the money that he had, that being the rich young ruler, and the refusal of money are designed by God to confront idolatry. In both instances, what God is doing is he's looking into the heart of the man and he's saying, I see the idol you have built there and I will not share space with it. When Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you want to come and be, be saved, you have to give away everything you have, he is not really saying that that's a requirement for all people in order to be saved, that you have to give away all your earthly possessions. What he is saying to that man is, you shall have no other God before me. I will not share space in your heart with the love you have for that pile of money. He's addressing it head on. He sees that God there, and he is going right for the jugular. And when he looks at Naaman, and Naaman says, please accept this gift. Please accept millions of dollars. God, speaking through his prophet Elisha, looks into the heart of that man and says, I know that if I accept this gift he will believe he bought something from me. I cannot take it. If you want to be a worshiper of me, you have to keep all your money. <laughs> it's the opposite of the rich young ruler, but he's really addressing the same concern, the same idolatrous thing that's there. Consider Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. <clears throat> so, being denied the, that he can't give this gift, Naaman says, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Uh, in the ancient Near East, it was thought that a god could be worshipped only on the soil of the nation to which he was bound. Therefore, Naaman wanted a couple of loads of Israelite soil to create a sacred space on which to make sacrifices to the Lord when he went back home to Damascus. Uh, this request confirms a change in Naaman, I think. Whereas he had disparaged Israel's Jordan River, preferring the rivers back home, 
Now he wants to take a pile of Israel's dirt back home so that his worship might be associated with the God of that place in some special way. Uh, We see here a a turning in his heart away from the, the prideful disdain he had to a humble embrace. I think that's what this is meant to symbolize and represent. As a close aide to Syria's king, Naaman's duty demanded that he accompany the king to religious services at the temple of Ramon in Damascus. Syrian national life was inextricably linked to pagan religious practice. And Naaman was a leading national figure. He, was already, he has already acknowledged that there is no other God but the God of Israel. So obviously he's not asking permission to continue worshiping Ramon, but rather he is explaining that his service to the king of Syria would require him to be present often at times when the pagan gods of the Syrians were being worshipped. And he's telling Elisha that although he would be present as required by his king, his heart would no longer be participating in such worship. So once again, we see um, really a, a remarkable statement from Naaman, a remarkable statement of faith. In a very short time, God has really turned his life in a new direction. And Elisha says, go in peace. Go in peace. He parts with a blessing over Naaman to go in peace. I have three closing thoughts. What do we do with this? (laughs) I think uh, the Bible is always meant to be lived. The Bible as a document is never just information. It's given to us so that we might walk out from here and live with it in a different way. The first thing I think we need to see from the story of Naaman is this. It's the role of suffering in God's redemptive plan. It was a horrible illness that caused Naaman to turn in desperation to God. He came seeking physical healing from leprosy, but he received a healing that was more than just skin deep. He experienced a healing of his broken relationship with God. Please don't be too impressed with the fact that he was healed of his leprosy. After all, he still died later from something else. Naaman is not walking around somewhere in the Middle East right now. He is dead. (laughs) He got to stay. That's what it was. Likewise, the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed from the flow of blood, guess what? She's dead. Lazarus, dead. And if the Lord should delay his coming, we're all going to die. Consider 2 Corinthians 4.17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love to read and spend time with the great um, conversion stories of the Bible. I just really love them. 
And one of the things I love about the story of Naaman is if you study all the conversion accounts in the Bible, and there are so many of them, uh, no two conversion accounts are the same. But Naaman is kind of a representative of those who have come to Christ because they were afflicted. Something happened in their life um, that caused them to turn to God, and it was a bad something. Uh, When I first showed up in Lulu, I had a a dear sister in Christ in my church, came to me tearfully after church one Sunday, explained to me that her brother Butch had cancer and was going to die, and she knew he didn't know the Lord. So I went down and I visited him. He had just had surgery. I went in and I visited him in the hospital. And I gave him a gift of a Bible. And we made plans to meet the next week. We met every week from that point until he died. And on one of the last occasions that we met before he died, uh, he was, um, we had been studying a passage in Scripture that Sunday about, uh, and I'm sorry, that week. Every week I would give him a passage to look up and think about. I said, when we get back together next week, we'll talk about what you read. And that week we had been talking about a, a passage where Jesus um, healed somebody who was horribly ill. And he said, you know, uh, and it was one of the most wonderfully humble statements I've ever heard from anybody in all my years of ministry. He said, I am so grateful to God for the gift of cancer. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He said, God could have caused me to die in a car wreck or a heart attack, but he gave me a disease where I saw it coming and I had time to turn to him. And he said, I've been healed. I, I have never heard a statement like that from anybody in all my life. He was grateful. And that day, just weeks before he died, he prayed a prayer of thanks for his cancer because it had brought him to God. And I was so blessed that I was able to share that at his memorial service. It was a great comfort to his family. His dear sister was in tears. <laughs> And it really was a gift. Because 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years from now in glory, it was that gift that gave, brought him to what was eternal and most needed. Don't forget, it was leprosy that made Naaman start investigating all this stuff about the real God. One of the other things I see in here is the juxtaposition of high and low and the powerful and weak. Uh, When we study this story, it's kind of like a yo-yo thing where it's like, the king of Syria, slave girl, (laughs) the muddy Jordan, the grand rivers, Abana and Farfar. It's just this kind of like high and low, a slave girl, an old man, a muddy creek, and the servant's advice juxtaposed with letters of reference from a king, wagons filled to the top with precious metals. It's just kind of like, man, this is, we're all over the place, up and down, round and round. But remember this, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 28, it says this, and I think we referenced this passage last week. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. I just picture here Naaman standing there going, I've got better rivers in Damascus. <laughs> and you're not asking any great thing of me. This is foolishness. But 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What God required of him was to set aside any, anything that would have resulted in his glorification, but instead to let God do the work, and he gets the blessing. The last thing I want to point out in closing as we wrap up is this. In Matthew 18.3, it says this. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does he mean? Become like children. Uh, lots of different ideas exist about what Jesus meant here, and I think that there is one very clear, obvious meaning to what he intended. He does not mean that you're to turn off your brain and become simplistic in your reasoning. No such thing. The word here that is used for children really means infant. And what he is saying is you have to come to me as a complete and utter dependent or don't come at all. We're about to have a baby, hopefully God willing, tomorrow. Hopefully God willing, today. <laughs> that would be even better. But when we do, one of the things I know that's going to happen, because we've done it five other times before with our five previous children, is for about a year, that kid's not going to be able to do anything on its own. We're going to have to carry it from one side of the room to the other. We're going to have to help it burp. It won't be able to burp on its own. Sarah will have to feed it, and then I'll help too someday. <laughs> have to change its diapers. I have to sing it to sleep. The thing won't be able to go to sleep on its own. It's just, it's a complete and utter dependent. If it's hungry and mom and dad don't feed this child, it will die. And so what Jesus is saying is when he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become a complete and utter dependent. When Naaman rolled up to the doorstep of Elisha, he thought of himself not in that way. He thought of himself as a dude who could get things done. But when he rolled away with his wagon still full of his money and also with a couple loads full of dirt <laughs> in addition, he humbly recognized, God doesn't need anything from me. God doesn't want stuff from me. God is not there to exploit me. God is not a transactional figure that I can get what I want from him and walked away blessed but independent. He had to walk away humbly acknowledging that in the presence of the Almighty God, he was a complete and utter dependent. He was a child. For the first time since he had been a child, he was a child again. And I believe that this is what is so hard for people when they come to Christ to accept. 
that Christ says, I've done it all. And now all that is left for you is to receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can be washed clean, but unless you come to me as a complete and utter dependent, as Naaman had to become, we cannot be washed clean. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are children in your presence. Which is not to say that we turn off our brain or any such thing as that. God, you make it perfectly clear elsewhere in your word that you want us to worship you with our intellect. You delight when we come to you with questions. You revealed yourself to us in the Bible, not a coloring book. God, there are things there to wrestle with and think about. The Bible, the Christian faith, is... God, the most central, most needed truths are something even the most limited intellect can grasp. But there's things in there that can, God, we can all dive in and never get to the bottom of. We know that's not what you're saying. But God, when it comes to our own salvation, we know and we humbly recognize that unless we become like children, dependence, that we need you, we can never be saved. We can never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, we turn to you in that way. We know from your word, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God, we know that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that you, your love for us is revealed in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And that now anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 9. And Father, having called on you as a complete and utter dependent, asking you, Lord, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, Father, we believe that there is therefore now nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been washed clean. We've been dipped in the river of Jesus' blood, and we've come out pure and clean. We give you thanks for this wonderful gospel truth. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've been able to spend this morning with Naaman. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.